Oh man, I'm ready to dig into the word. How about you? By the way, I have to tell you uh, just a funny conversation. We have a pre-service meeting, the worship team, uh, before uh, every Sunday before the service. And Leanne, I think, asked Scott, she says, do you want to tell them that Pastor Dexter's not here today, that instead we have Pastor Jared? And he goes, I think they'll figure it out. <laughs> uh, so in case you haven't figured it out, I am not Pastor Dexter. <laughs> Uh, but I love that man, uh, dear friend of mine, wonderful pastor for you guys, and, and uh, so glad that he is here. And I'm so grateful for all of you. We love you guys. We love coming to this campus. And so uh, with that said, let's, let's dig into God's word. Let me, let me voice a word of prayer. Lord, you are mighty. You are mighty. We don't even begin to understand the depths of your power and love and grace and mercy. You are the sovereign king of all kings, the Lord over all lords. And that includes us. When we try to be our own Lord and our own king, God, would you perish that thought? And as Scott said earlier, send that thought straight to hell. Because we are not our king and we are not our own Lord. You are. And we were designed and created to worship you and abide with you forever and ever. Thank you for Jesus that restores that relationship to you with us. And that we can abide with you forever. Father, I, I know that there are some here today who are feeling anguish and depression and loneliness. God, would you be the joy for them. May your presence be a delight to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. One of my greatest fears growing up was being alone. And I hated the thought of being alone. No one truly wants to be alone. No, no one wants to be lonely. Even the most isolated, independent people on the planet deep down desire companionship. Now think, about, think about Hollywood for a second. All the movies that feature isolation, right? I'm thinking of uh, The Martian with Matt Damon. You seen that movie? He's stranded on the planet Mars for years, and all he wants is just to have someone there with him. I think of the movie Gravity with Sandra Bullock. Same thing. She's just floating out in space, isolated with no one around. She just wants companionship. I think of apocalyptic movies like uh, The Book of Eli with Denzel or uh, 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 I Am Legend with Will Smith. You know, I Am Legend, he had his dog, and that is his one companion. I think of Pixar movies like Wally, Wally, right? <laughs> the robot who's on Earth by himself, and he just wants another companion, and he has his little cockroach friend. I think of the movie Up, this old curmudgeon guy, get off my lawn, kid. You know, he doesn't want anyone else around, but deep down, he just wants a friend. I think of the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks. Remember that movie? In this movie, Tom Hanks' character is marooned on an island by himself for who knows how many years, and he is so desperate for companionship, for friendship. He just wants someone there that he actually creates a character. He creates a companion, which is who? Wilson, right? This volleyball with a handprint for a face, and he actually talks with Wilson as if he's a person. He wanted companionship. And sadly, many feel that they are completely and utterly alone. And maybe that is some of you here this morning. You feel completely and utterly alone. Maybe you go home and there's no one there. You have no 
You feel like you have no friends or companions, you have no family to confide in. Or, ironically, maybe you are constantly surrounded by people. You go home to a full house, you go to work surrounded by employees, you go to this place and that, you're constantly surrounded by people, but you feel like an isolated person marooned on an island with no one around. You feel utterly and completely alone. Listen to me, you are not alone. You don't have to be. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings in the Old Testament chapter 19. This is one of my favorite stories. One of my favorite characters of the Bible, Elijah. But before we dig into chapter 19, let's set the, the context for the story. Well, let's talk about the, the previous two chapters. There's this man, King Ahab, who was one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history that they've ever had to that point. I mean, this dude was a bad mamma jamma. I mean, he was, he was a bad guy, and his wife, Queen Jezebel, was even worse. She was even more vile than he was, and together they led the hearts of the people astray to turn away in spiritual rebellion from the one true God in order to worship false gods, this false god Baal and this false goddess Asherah. And so the Lord, through the prophet Elijah, this man of God, proclaims a drought, there would not be a drop of rain, not condensation, not precipitation, not a drop of dew from a petal on a flower for years until the people repented and turned back to him. And so a few years pass, and the famine was extremely severe. And so Ahab and his wife Jezebel have killed several of the prophets of the Lord, thinking maybe that will end the famine. Then they are headhunting the big prophet, the head honcho, Elijah, thinking if we just kill him, this drought, this famine would end. And so some years pass and Elijah, God tells Elijah, I want you to stand before King Ahab. I want you to go before him and you're going to confront him. And so he does. Elijah appears before Ahab and he says, I want you to bring all the people of God, all the Israelites to Mount Carmel. And I want you to summon the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. I want you to bring them all to Mount Carmel. Carmel, there would be a showdown. This is like, you know, on, on the playground, like, oh, there's going to be a fight after school. This is the showdown. You've heard of the Thriller in Manila. This is the melee on the mount. This is the clash on Carmel. This is the showdown for who's going to bow down. Okay, I'm done. So, <laughs> so here is this showdown about to happen. And Elijah says, look in chapter 18, verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. He's saying, listen, quit playing patty cake. Quit trying to ride the fence. If God is God, follow him. If he's not, follow someone else. But you've got to make a decision. Pick a side. And the people did not answer him a word. Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left alone, a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So you have one versus 450. So he says, here's the stipulations for the showdown. I want you to get two bulls. Prophets of Baal, you can choose which bull you want to sacrifice, and I'll take the other. And you sacrifice that bull, place it upon some wood, and you pray and call upon your God, and the God who answers by fire from heaven, that is the true God. 
And so the people say, okay, sounds good. Game on. And so the prophets of Baal start. It says from sunup to sundown. They are praying, they're screaming, they're crying out, they're singing, they're dancing, and they get louder and louder and louder for hours until midday, probably noon, 1 p.m., nothing's happened. And so Elijah's sitting back watching the whole thing, just chuckling to himself, amused by this whole thing. He starts, get this, talking trash. Now listen, I love watching the NBA. Draymond Green can talk some trash. But he ain't got nothing on Elijah. He makes Draymond Green look like a little kitten because he is trash-talking these prophets of Baal before he even has a chance to go. That's boldness right there. That's confidence that his God would come through. So he's trash-talking them. He's saying, hey, where's Baal? Maybe he's in another room. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's in the bathroom. And they're like, yeah, maybe. And they get louder and louder and louder. And for hours, and it says they start cutting themselves. They start slashing themselves till literally it says, and this is gory, this is a little graphic, the blood starts gushing out. They're trying to get attention from this false god Baal, but as verse 28 says, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of offering, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So the time of the evening sacrifice comes, and Elijah says, all right, my turn. And he builds up the altar of the Lord using 12 large stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He restores, repairs the altar of the Lord, and he puts wood upon the altar, puts the bowl upon the the wood as the sacrifice, and then he starts digging a trench around this altar. And you got to know that everyone was like, Elijah, what are you doing? That wasn't part of your stipulations to build a trench. He's like, I got this. Yeah, but Elijah, I got this. He starts digging the trench. This, this uh, uh, gutter around the altar. And they're thinking, what is he doing? He says, I want you to get four large jars and fill them with water. Now, listen, I'm no scientist, but in a drought, in a famine, what is a very precious, scarce resource? Water. And he's saying, I want you to take water and fill up four large jars. And so they do. And they're thinking, what, what, what do you want us to do with this? He says, I want you to pour it on the altar, pour it on the sacrifice, dump it. And they're like, what? Elijah, don't you know that that'll make it harder for the sacrifice to life? He's, yeah, I know how chemistry works. <laughs> do it. Dump it on there. You see what he's doing. He's saying, this is not a parlor trick. I'm not just going to take a match and just light it and, oh, magic trick, illusion, and oh, it's on fire, fire from heaven. He is taking out everything that could bring him glory. He is stacking the odds against himself so that God would get all glory, so God would be proven as the one true God. And so they do. Water is spilling over, filling the trench, and he says, yeah, um, do it again. What? Again, fill it up. Four jars, do it again. So they do. Says, yeah, still too easy. Do it a third time. And so they do. And the water is so spilling over the altar and the bowl and the wood that it's filling up the trench. The trench is overflowing with water. And then Elijah prays. And he prays with passion and boldness and confidence. He's saying, God, I need you. We need you to show up and show off. We need you to prove that you are the one true God. We need you to show up and get all the glory for yourself, that you 
are worthy of it all. Do something, Lord. Prove to these people that you are God. And at that moment, he gets done praying, and fire falls down from heaven in a column of fire, a blazing glory, so radiant, so hot, that the bowl and the wood is incinerated into ash immediately. The water is, it says, licked up. It is evaporated, turned into uh, a steam. And in fact, so hot that the stones and the dust are charred and incinerated, probably turned to glass all around. And you know that the people were sitting there in stunned silence. And then they says that they get on their faces before the Lord in humility and start worshiping God. And they start saying, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Listen, I know this is cheesy, but let's do that right now. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, okay, okay. You just saw fire come from heaven, folks. Church, we could do a little better than that. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And all the people repent and fall down before God. The people see this. They praise the Lord and turn back to him. And they have all those false prophets who had turned the hearts of the people astray. They have them killed. And shortly after, rain comes down. And there's a torrential downpour upon the earth of famine. The drought is over. And that's when we get to chapter 19. So Ahab gets back and he tells Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Ahab, this big tattletale, blabs to his wife Jezebel who gets furious and wants Elijah killed. Now, Elijah just saw fire fall from heaven. He just just saw this incredible showdown. All the people turned back to God. Surely he would stand his ground and say, okay, you want to come after me? I know who's on my side. I know who's who's got my back. Come on, bring it on. And, And surely he would be bold and pray and call on the name of the Lord as he did previously, but he doesn't. Look at verse three. And then he was afraid And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. No, he tucks tail and flees. He runs out of fear. The fear of man overcomes the fear of God here. It overtook the fear of God. How could he go from such boldness to complete trepidation? Simply, he lost sight. And some of us suffer under what I call temporary spiritual amnesia on occasion. You ever had temporary spiritual amnesia? Come on now. Let's be honest. Temporary spiritual amnesia. This is where we seem to forget all that God has done in our lives. We forget God's grace and God's glory and power. We forget God's awesome power able to accomplish anything he desires for his glory. We forget the incredible truths of the gospel. Spiritual temporary amnesia. I have watched God save dudes from their sins by grace that you would never expect to be saved. I mean, these guys, some drug dealers, involved in gangs, 
hating God, but they get radically saved by Jesus. I mean, you talk about they turn their life to him, they repent, they surrender, they believe, and God gets a hold of their hearts, and they are like a new person. I mean, completely night and day, new creation, and I see this, and I'm like, oh, that's awesome, God, you are awesome, and then soon after, I have an opportunity to share my faith, and I don't, out of fear. Did God change? Did God change? Is he still the same God? Is he still with me? Is God still powerful and present? It's spiritual amnesia. I forget. We forget. And so Elijah forgets. And look at verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He sits under a tree and desires to die. He actually prays that the Lord would take his life. Have you ever been so much in despair that you almost wish that you didn't live anymore? Can we be real this morning? Sometimes the temporary spiritual amnesia is so bad that we forget that we have life in Christ. We revert back to when we were living in darkness, living in sin, condemned to die in our sin. And so our joy in Jesus is sapped, shriveled up, dried, and withered. We forget the hope in Christ. We lose the will. We lose the desire to live for the Lord. And this is not anything new. You need to realize that several characters in the Bible, Old Testament and New, Abraham, Moses, Esther, David went through severe depression or loneliness or temporary spiritual amnesia where they struggle with this. Even Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, I have despaired even of my own life. This is not anything new for believers. In fact, wonderful evidence is Psalm 42. If you ever go through depression, I encourage you, read Psalm 42. The psalmist is literally going through depression. He says, I am in anguish, I am in deep distress, I am crushed, my tears have been my food day and night, my enemy, internal and external, is crying out to me, where is your God? If I could paraphrase that psalm, I would say this. Maybe the psalmist is saying something like this, I desire God and his presence more than anything, and yet sorrow has overwhelmed me. I wonder, God, where are you? Does he even really exist? If so, where is he in this moment? Why hasn't he come to help me? Why hasn't he come to comfort me? I remember when I used to walk closely with God. A joy used to fill me that was indescribable as I would thank him for his blessings. But now I am in despair. My soul is disturbed. Yet, yet I will hope in God. I will praise his holy name. I will seek his presence. I will remember him in the storms of life. His loving kindness never ceases. And he is with me in the darkness of life. God is my rock. And though I am oppressed and depressed, persecuted and mocked, I will still hope in God and praise him because he is my help, the lifter of my soul. It is not abnormal to reach a point of sorrow and loneliness and hopelessness that you despair even of your own life. That is not abnormal. Don't think that you are isolated and alone in that struggle. There is always hope. 
The psalmist claims that, but yet I hope, but yet I hope. Elijah had forgotten the hope. When we look at verses 5 through 8, and Elijah is so emotionally and spiritually exhausted that he is physically exhausted as well. God did not ridicule him or downplay his despair. He actually provides a meal for him twice. Twice he provides a meal for him. So Elijah passes out. He falls asleep. He's so exhausted. And an angel of the Lord comes and uh, makes bread, hot, fresh bread from the Lord. I love bread. You know that would have been good. Sometimes, actually multiple times a week, I have an angel that prepares a meal for me as well. That's called brownie points, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so an angel makes a, a hot, prepared meal. He eats it, and then he falls back asleep. A second time, an angel makes a hot meal, wakes him up. He wakes up, eats it, falls asleep. Sometimes when you go through a difficult time, you are overwhelmed with sorrow. You just need to rest and eat. Psychiatrists, counselors say that. They say that when you're going through depression and loneliness, one of the first things you neglect are the basic necessities of life. You forget to sleep and rest, and you forget to eat and take care of yourself. God knew that. He knew that he needed rest and food because he was about to embark on a difficult 40-day journey. Look at verse 9. So there he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, Elijah, what are you doing here? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I'll tell you in a minute why I read it that way. Elijah flees to this cave to hide from his persecutors who want nothing but to take his life. And the Lord asks Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing here? Which is deliberate because God knows how much How much, folks? Everything. Elijah says, I've put you first as the most important thing in my life, but everyone else has abandoned you completely to the point that they have killed all who followed you, and I alone am left. Elijah is feeling so alone that he literally believes he's the only follower of God left. I love how candid and brutally honest Elijah is in his prayer. I think we can use a little bit more of that in the body of Christ. Do you agree? We could be a little more vulnerable and honest with God. Listen, you're not going to hide anything from God. He's God. (laughs) He knows your thoughts. Psalm 139, he knows every word that forms on your tongue before it's even formed. He knows every thought you're going to think, everywhere you're going to be. He knows your motives, your intentions. He delights in honest prayers. So if God knows all our thoughts and intentions, why would he ask Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing here? He wants Elijah to admit his powerlessness. He wants Elijah to be completely humble. This is is the first point. Number one, there's power in feeling powerless. There's power in feeling powerless. When do people tend to pray and seek God most intensely? You guys tell me. When they hit rock bottom, when they're having rough times. When they've hit rock bottom, when they've reached the end of their rope. When you hit rock bottom and you have nowhere else to go, you can't dig any lower, you acknowledge pretty quickly, I can't get myself out. I'm powerless. 
I need help. I need someone who has power. The last month or two, if I could be honest with you guys, has been kind of rough uh, in ministry. Just personally in, in, in ministry, uh, been just, it, the ups have been high and the lows have been low. Uh, a lot of conflict and fires being put out in, in various ministries, and it's just started to wear on me. And, and internally, I believe just the enemy has been weaseling in these little thoughts of doubt and discouragement trying to lead to destruction, and so just fighting that and fighting that. So the last month or so, I've just been wearied, and my wife has seen this. And so the other day, just, what, a couple days ago, she says, what do you think God's purpose in this is? She says, have you been praying more during this time? I said, oh, yeah. I mean, my prayers have gone up like threefold. She says, huh, Interesting. <laughs> Could it be that God wants you to pray more and abide in him and maybe double up your prayers? Husbands, doesn't, doesn't God give our wives just a measure of wisdom that we just don't have? <laughs> Ladies, can I get an amen? Man, and I, and I realized, that's so true. My prayer intensity, my need for Jesus has gone up through personal strife. God will not do much with those who are prideful and try to take on life by themselves. Those are the true isolated loners. You cannot exalt God when you are exalting yourself. I think of a seesaw. When you're down, who, who's the other one's up, right? When the other one's down, you're up. You can't exalt yourself and exalt God at the same time. It doesn't work that way. And prideful people essentially are saying they don't need God's presence in their lives. However, admitting that you need to depend on God, that you need him to fill you with his presence, makes you malleable before God. Scripture refers to us as clay in the hands of the potter. We're not the potter. You understand that, right? We are the what? Clay. We are the clay in the hands of the potter. And so clay that is malleable is shiftable, movable, and it might hurt when he has to wrench you a little bit, when he has to pull, when he has to tug, when he has to stretch, but it is for your good. He's crafting you into something. Clay that hardens is good for nothing. Don't be hard clay. Now, God can use you if you are broken. God uses broken pottery all the time. He melts you down. He reshapes you. He reforms you. But you've got to be willing to be used. And so understanding that you are powerless is crucial. But that's only half the formula. Look at verse 11. So the Lord said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Literally before my presence. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, before my presence, but the Lord was not in the wind. You have this gale force, hurricane style F5 tornado wind that is sweeping through the mountains. Rocks are crumbling, calling just broken asunder. They are coming down, causing a, a, a rock slide, a mighty, powerful wind. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. The Lord's presence was not in it. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. And we're talking about 8.9 on the Richter scale. Shake your boots. I mean, the cave feels like it's going to crash down all around Elijah. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. The Lord's presence was not in it. And after the 
wind and after the earthquake, there is a fire. I'm thinking a fire that makes the great Chicago fire look like a campfire. I'm talking something that burns, that blazes through the mountains, that is so incinerating hot that you can't even look at it. You, can't, you just feel the intense heat, but the Lord was not in the fire. The Lord's presence was not in it. And after the wind and after the earthquake and after the fire, verse 12, the sound of a low whisper. Other translations say a gentle blowing, a still small voice, the sound of a small whisper, a gentle whisper. Isn't it interesting that a gentle whisper is what God uses to grab Elijah's attention? The Lord's presence was not in the wind, was not in the earthquake, was not in the fire, but the Lord's presence was in the gentle whisper. And Elijah immediately recognized the Lord's presence because when you are in the Lord's presence, you know it, right? There is no mistaking the Lord's presence. You know the Lord's presence when you are in it. Isn't it interesting that these three forces of nature, which, by the way, insurance companies call acts of God, these forces of nature do not feature his presence, but a little, still, small, gentle whisper does. Hmm. Man, isn't our God good and mysterious? Elijah knew of God's power. He had witnessed God's power when fire fell from heaven upon the altar. God displayed his power again in the wind and the quake and the fire. Elijah saw God's power, but at that moment, he needed God's presence. We have all kinds of things that happen in our lives that cause us to despair and stress and knowing God's power to handle all those things uh, is great. But God's power without his presence would do us no good. Oh, church, isn't it good to know that our God is near? Isn't that good to know our God is near? Seek God's presence before you seek his power. Seek his face before you seek his hand. Instead of asking God what he can do for you, what if you just ask God for God? God, I, I don't want stuff from you. I just want you. I just need your presence. And it's in that moment that Elijah wraps his cloak around his face to demonstrate humility and reverence. And that's when he leaves the cave and stands on the mountain in the Lord's presence. And once again, God asks Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah gives the exact same answer. Verse 14, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I, only am left, and I seek my life to take it away. I mean, word for word, verse 14 is exactly the same as verse 10, which begs the question, was Elijah's response rehearsed? Had he gone through this in, I mean, we're talking word for word exactly the same. It's like he had gone through the excuses in his head as to why he ran away in fear so much so that it became ingrained in him. Sometimes in our distress and loneliness, we hear the lies from the enemy so much that we start to fixate on them. And then we start to believe them. And then they become so ingrained, they develop into a false identity. 
Elijah was believing this false identity, these false truths, these lies. But why does God speak to Elijah in a whisper? Why is that? Well, let me demonstrate. I, I, need, a, I need a volunteer. Melvin, you're, you're a good volunteer. <laughs> actually, you've just been voluntold. I want you to actually stand in the back. And I'm going to give you an instruction, and I want you to follow the instruction if you can hear it. Okay, I'm going to turn off my mic. Okay? Here's what I was whispering. I said, Melvin, raise your right hand. Melvin, raise your right hand. Now, why couldn't he do it back there? Too far away, he wasn't close. A whisper only works when you are close. And essentially, God was showing him that he is close at hand. He is never alone. Elijah is never alone. I wonder what the Lord whispered. I wonder if he whispered, Elijah, I'm right here. I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm right here. Listen, church, you are not alone. Friends, you are not alone. You are not alone. You are not alone. And the enemy wants you to think that you are isolated and alone. See, the enemy, ironically, also whispers in your ears, but he is whispering only destructive lies because he is the father of lies. So you got to discern where the spirit is whispering and discern where the enemy is whispering. 1 Peter 5 calls Satan, our enemy, the adversary, a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You know, you've seen, you've seen the Discovery Channel, right? There's a herd of gazelle prancing through the Serengeti. And then here comes the lion. And, he, <laughs> and he's in the tall grass and he's stalking his prey. And here comes the lion and oh, there's, there's one that has been separated from the herd. And he's limping in the back and the lion is stalking. Right? Okay, I'm not going to do. I'm not Steve Irwin. And so here's the herd of gazelle and they're moving on but there's one kind of in the back of the pack just being isolated, good, doing their own thing, going their way and who does the lion go after? That one. The enemy is looking for someone to devour and take down. The lion takes down the loners away from the pack. But here's what you need to understand. Friends, again, you are not alone. You're not alone. Number two, God's presence is always with you. Which leads to the second half of the formula I said earlier. The first half was, there's power in feeling powerless. The second half is this. Number three, you may be powerless, but God is not. And if you let God work through you, you will see him do mighty, amazing things in your life. 
And so Elijah is down on himself. He's feeling alone. He's feeling depressed. And verses 15 through 18, the Lord actually gives him a mission. The Lord sends him on a mission to anoint kings and leaders over various nations. These leaders would work to restore order and punish those who turned from God and who tried to kill those who worshipped God. See, God was not done with Elijah yet. In fact, God delights in using broken people. Do you believe that? He delights in using broken people because broken people are ready to be used. They have no pride. They have no selfishness. They have no self-exaltation in which uh, they rise themselves up before God. They are laid low, and God says, that's right where I want you to be. Only when Elijah was broken and surrendered was he ready to be used by God. And so in verse 18, the Lord tells him, you're not alone, Elijah. In fact, literally, there are actually 7,000 in Israel who have refused to worship another god, refused to bow down their knee or chase after idols, 7,000 whose hearts still belong to God. So not only is God's presence always with you, but lastly, number four, God's people are there for you. You are not alone. Some of you are broken by rough home life, broken by divorce, broken relationships, a broken heart. You are bullied at school, bullied at work. You are persecuted, mocked. You have financial stress in your family. I could go on and on. But rather than seeking God's presence and allowing him to use you in your humble state, you sink into self-pity. Paul, the apostle, was tempted to do that. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 7, he says, to keep me from getting puffed up, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from getting proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away, and each time he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power works best in your weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may work through me. Since I know it is all for Christ's good, I am quite content with my weaknesses and with my insults, with my hardships, my persecutions, my calamities, dare I say, my loneliness. For when I am weak, then I am strong." It's the power and presence of the Lord. So the whole point this morning is this. God is with those who belong to him. He's with you, friend. Christian, he is with you. If you are a follower of Christ, he is with you. I want to read Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11 from the New Living Translation. I love the way this is worded. The psalmist says, I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is filled with joy and my mouth shouts his praises. My body rests in safety. For you will not leave my soul among the dead. You will not allow your godly one to rot in the grave. You will show me the way of life. Listen to this. Granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. Oh, I got to read that again. You will show me the way of life. Granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you for how long? For a moment? For a minute? For a day, for a week, for ever. 
There is nothing like being in the Lord's presence. In him is joy. In him is pleasure. And for those of us in Christ, we get to rejoice in the presence of God forever. Now, without Jesus, we would be rightly terrified of God's presence. That's what happens in Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve sinned for the very first time. Previously, they had walked with God, it says, in the cool of the garden, hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, walked with God. But then they sinned. They said, God, you're not enough for me. I'm going to be my own king. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to determine what is right and true for me apart from you. They sinned. And it says that when they heard the sound of God, they what? Hid themselves, terrified of God's presence. But we're not terrified of God's presence. Why? Because Jesus became the curse for us. Jesus became the wrath, the just wrath of God as he absorbed it upon himself as the propitiation sacrifice on the cross. And so no longer do we stand under the curse of God's just wrath, but we stand under nothing but grace and love and mercy and blessing. And the God who created the wind The God who created the earthquake, the God who created the fire dwelt among us and walked on this earth. God became flesh and became a servant, dying for us to eliminate the rift that we had with our creator. And he ushers us in with him into his presence forever, not to be crushed by the almighty just wrath of God, but to enjoy him in his presence and abide with him for all eternity. Now is that good news? Now let's stand, let's sing, let's rejoice in the king of good news.